Good evening, Cheryl. Good evening. Uh, how long have you been part of St. Dee's? Uh, five years. Wonderful. And what is your, one of, what's your sort of role and involvement uh, at the moment? Um, I am church warden, a member of the PCC, um, until recently a director of the uh, Charlotte Antonia Sullivan charity, which is uh, a, a trust that was endowed to St. Dionys by a wonderful lady back in the Victorian days. So basically, you're holding this church together. Uh, so amazing. You do so much. Thank you. Uh, where did you grow up, Joe? Where did I grow up? Hartford. Hertfordshire. Hertfordshire. And what do you do uh, in the day, during the week? Okay, so my day job is I work for a big Christian NGO called World Vision, which is a great blessing. And I work in our global advocacy team working on international justice um, issues, mostly around United Nations processes, G8, G20, that type of stuff. And we focus on children around the world. Wow, um, amazing stuff. Cheryl is also training uh, for licensed lay ministry in the Church of England at St. Melitus College. Um, it's basically a major blessing wherever she goes. So why don't we uh, stretch a hand out, like the Tim thing earlier, uh, towards Cheryl. Let's pray for her before she um, speaks to us this evening. Father, we thank you so much for our sister and your daughter, Cheryl. Lord, we thank you for how you've made her, for all the gifts and talents you've poured into her which she makes available for your use, seeking first your kingdom. We pray that you would bless her richly tonight as she gives out to us and speaks, speaks to us from your word. Holy Spirit, would you fill her afresh? Would you anoint her? And would you speak to us? In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to invite Laura, who's... I was going to say she volunteered, but she didn't really. She kindly agreed to, uh, to read the word for us. So we're on um, page 658 in Isaiah. Grab a Bible. Isaiah chapter 9, and we're in the first four verses. Page 658. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest as soldiers rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Thank you. Amen. So our theme today is walking in the light, which is actually kind of appropriate on a day as, as beautiful as today has been. We just read in verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And what we're going to be looking at is what does it mean to walk in that light with God? So we're in the amazing book of Isaiah. Perhaps might be some of your fav yours favorite. 
um, arguably the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, and actually the one that is quoted more than any other in the New Testament. But needing to be read with a little bit of care, um, the great Martin Luther said of the writings of the prophets, they have a queer way of talking, like people who, instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, ramble off from one thing to the next, so that you cannot make head nor tail of them or see what they are getting at. Which might make you wonder what hope there is for the rest of us, but it is a healthy reminder, I think, that, that context is key, perhaps more so in the Old Testament um, as well. So before we can understand what God is saying to us here today in this passage, we need to understand what it was saying to the people who were the first audience, the people that Isaiah was speaking to at the time. So that's where we're going to start. I'm just going to build up some of the context for this passage, and then we're going to look at what does it mean for us to walk in the light. So the books of the prophets cover about 300 years. It's a continuous period of 300 years, starting around the mid-700s BC. Uh, it's perhaps not a coincidence that at this time or during this period, Israel was in a world that was seeing unprecedented amount of upheaval, politically, economically, socially. There were enormous shifts in balance of power around the world as it was then, and mass movements of people as borders moved. Perhaps more importantly for the Israelites, it was also a time of great religious unfaithfulness. There was a lot of idolatry, a lot of turning away from the law on the part of the people. Which maybe actually feels a little bit familiar to the world that we find ourselves in today. And Isaiah's ministry comes at the beginning of this period. At this stage, Israel had been divided into those two kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Isaiah was based in Jerusalem which was in Judah. And he was primarily a prophet to Judah, but he also spoke a lot about the north, which he did really, um, I would say, as a sort of a case study for Judah in how not to do things. Israel was always just slightly ahead of Judah in terms of, of getting it all wrong. Around the time of our passage, in chapter 9, both Israel and Judah were under threat from a number of adversaries, including actually periodically from each other. So this was a time of simmering civil war between the two as well. There was a nation called Assyria to the north, which was the main threat. Assyria had at this time begun a, a program of ruthless empire building. So Israel actually found itself with an aggressive superpower right on its border. And Israel's northern territories, Zebulun and Naphtali, had actually already fallen to um, Assyria at this time. So that's why you see them referenced in this passage in verse 1. And this fall was a judgment of God on Israel for its idolatry. Meanwhile, in the south, in Judah, we have a new king. King Ahaz has come to the throne. He proved to be one of Judah's worst kings, which is saying something, because they were a pretty miserable bunch. And he subordinated himself to Assyria in order basically to save himself and his monarchy. 
He even at one point desecrated the temple of the Lord to try to win win favor with the king of Assyria. And much of Isaiah's prophecy was spent trying to get Ahaz to turn back to God. And this was actually the key role for prophets at this time. They were there really put in place, their role was to mediate between God and the people and their kings. It was to reinforce God's covenant with them. So God didn't just give the law, God enforced the law. So there is blessing and there is punishment and the role of the prophet was to give comfort or warning accordingly to elicit a response. So basically God is urging the people throughout this time to make the right choice. We see the choice put before Judah in this passage. If you look at the end of chapter 8, verse 22, just before our passage starts, there is the warning on Judah for its idolatry. It talks about the people seeing only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and that they will be thrust into utter darkness. But then in the very next verse, verse 1, is the alternative. Isaiah also holds out this message of comfort. There's a glimmer of hope in the midst of the darkness, which is the promise of God's deliverance. He says, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, which was Judah. Isaiah goes on then as a way of encouraging them to give a glimpse of what this will be like if they turn back to the Lord. In verse 2, he says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as soldiers rejoice when dividing the plunder. And then, in case they haven't managed to join the dots, in verse 4, Isaiah introduces a little vignette that would have been very familiar to the Israelites. He says, For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. And in this verse, what he's doing is reminding them of Gideon's victory which we read about in Judges, with just the 300 men that the Lord allowed him, his victory over the Midianites, which the, who the Bible tells us were like locusts in number. And just to underline that point, Isaiah's audience would also have known that the people that Gideon delivered and rescued in that fight against the Midianites was actually Zebulon and Naphtali, which were the parts of the north that had at this point fallen to the Assyrians. So in sum, what God is saying to Ahaz is I can deliver you from the Assyrians. But in order to make that happen, Ahaz has to make a choice. The Lord is asking him, Am I your God, 
or am I not? Ahaz is walking in darkness. God invites Ahaz to walk in the light with him. And unfortunately, as we will find out later, Ahaz chooses not to. So now, maybe having got a bit of a more perspective on that passage, what about us? What do we choose? God invites us to walk in the light with him as well. We also have the choice. That's God's design for us as human beings. We get to choose. There's that famous verse in Deuteronomy, I have set before you life and death. Choose life. I said earlier that the key aspect of the Old Testament prophet's role was bearing witness to this covenantal character of God. But the prophets did also, to a lesser extent, do that kind of stereotypical prophet thing of making long-range predictions, of making predictions about what will happen far, far ahead into the future. And this actually is one of those occasions, because what is also contained in this passage is a prediction of the coming of Christ. You can see that in two ways. One is that in verse 2, the word light, as well as being a name for God, was also specifically one of the names in the Jewish tradition that was used for the Messiah. And then once we get into the New Testament, in Matthew's Gospel, there is a direct reference, there is a, a quote of these two verses, 1 and 2, and a statement that Jesus' ministry has fulfilled them as prophecy. And so we can read this text at different levels. Here we are, post-incarnation, post-resurrection, and we might just pause for a minute and think what an incredible blessing that is, that, that we were born now. And we can read from this text as if it is speaking to ourselves in that respect. So we, as Christians, are also the people described in verses 1 and 2. It is we who were walking in darkness, and it is we who have seen the great light of Christ. The question for us now is whether we choose to walk in that light with him. By which I mean, do our lives reflect that awesome truth that we are saved and loved so much by our Lord? I heard someone uh, describe the church as being full of behavioral atheists. Behavioral atheists. That is to say that looking at us the world sometimes struggles to see the difference between Christians and people who are not Christians, not yet Christians. An example that struck me recently was when um, Donald Trump won the US elections. Quite a few people that I know, maybe you saw this amongst your friends, colleagues, family as well, for a good couple of weeks seemed to go into just um, a downward spiral of panic, despair, 
what's happening to the world, what is going to happen to the world. Um, there was a slightly obsessive checking of news media and a buffeting of emotions one way or the other, depending on what the latest uh, twist in the tale was. Yet as Christians, we can choose a different response. We'll all be very familiar with this verse, but familiarity, as we, I think we all know, certainly I know from my own experience, doesn't necessarily mean living it out. But Jesus very clearly said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. This is a peace that is not affected by or dependent on our circumstances. You know, this coming Tuesday, April the 4th, is the date that the Diocese of London remembers the martyrdom of that other amazing Martin Luther, uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. There is a man who was a great witness to walking in the light with God. I would encourage you as a, a little treat um, to search out his mountaintop sermon online and have a listen, even if it's just to the last minute. It's just before the last minute. It's so uplifting. So Martin Luther King, as you probably know, lived under pretty much a constant threat of assassination. And on the day of that sermon, he was very aware of some very real and present threats to his life. Some very specific threats had been made that day. At the end of this sermon, which was actually his last, because he was, in fact, assassinated the very next day. But when we listen to him speak, we hear what it is to walk in the peace of the Lord. I think most of you will be very familiar with these words, but I will just pick out a few of, of those lines that he said. I just want to do God's will. He's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. And I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the Lord. The Apostle Paul says in uh, 2 Corinthians, we are the aroma of Christ. What an amazing, just a beautiful verse. What an amazing thought that we are the aroma of Christ. Peace is part of that aroma. Joy is another aroma of Christ. We look at verse 3. When people have, the people have seen the light, what do they do? They rejoice. I think Isaiah manages to to cram in there three or four repetitions of either joy or rejoice in that one verse. Like peace, the great saints have joy in abundance. It's perhaps one of the things that marks them out from the rest of us. And again, like peace, joy is joy in the Lord being not happiness, not I'm having a great day or I got some great news. But joy in the Lord is a deep thing that is not affected by or dependent on our circumstances. It's really, I find, really inspiring 
to, uh, and instructive to look at the lives of the great saints. And I don't know how many of you are fans of the great saints, but I find them incredibly inspiring and helpful. Um, and I just want to share with you a, a, a vignette about two of them, about this joy and how it manifests itself. Um, I will start with Teresa of Avila. Saint Teresa of Avila is probably my favorite saint. She is the most incredible woman. Saint Teresa of Avila had a really challenging life. She lived under intense pressure at work, reforming and running her religious order, but also in her personal faith. Her life was incredibly stressful. She was under the constant scrutiny of the Spanish Inquisition which wasn't so funny at the time as it was when Monty Python took them on. She was also incredibly very ill for much of her life. She actually spent large amounts, long amounts of time in, in a coma. And yet, in spite of all of this, she is consistently described by biographers, um, contemporaries, people at the time, as being exuberant, joyful. She was fun. She had a great sense of humor. She was hugely lively. In spite of all of that that was going on, and if you read her own writings, the joy just leaps off the page. St. Francis of Assisi is another one. Here is a man who lived an incredibly challenging life of, of self-denial. He felt a very strong personal calling to suffer with Christ in Christ's sufferings, which led to extraordinary feats um, of asceticism, um, and also ultimately to his receiving the stigmata. And yet joy is one of the central characteristics of St. Francis, and joy is one of the central notes of the order that he founded, the Franciscans. And again, contemporaries of his describe him quite frequently dancing down the lanes of Assisi, singing, he would sing in French, not quite sure why, and playing the air violin was another one of his favorite things. So here is a really joyful, I mean, you can just imagine seeing that, that would make you feel joyful. Here is another joyful guy who was living a type of life, if you've read his life, you cannot imagine how someone could have lived with such hardship. But I don't want us to make the mistake of thinking that this deep joy, this deep peace, this deep spiritual experiences are only reserved for saints. Of course, we're all saints with a little s. But this deep peace and deep joy is for all of us. And I think it's a, it's a tragedy when we don't claim it. So I want to finish by suggesting just uh, there are many things that we can do to increase that, that deep sense of peace and joy, but just two quick things I wanted to suggest this evening. The first is that we can develop an increased awareness of God's presence. And of course, we're in God's presence all the time. We're in God's presence right here and now. But it may be worth thinking about how often do we consciously shift our awareness during our average day to God, to really being aware that we are dwelling in his presence. As the Bible says, we need to be able to switch our focus from the things that are seen to the things that are unseen. So as humans, we experience time as linear. You know, one moment follows the next. 
and we progress towards old age. But as Christians, we're also called to live lives in the context of eternity. It's part of that now and not yet tension that we're all aware of. So I think what we see in these saints is that perhaps they spend a little bit more time than than most of us do being aware of that eternal background, that eternal context, as well as just what's immediately in front of them. And that's a choice. We all have that choice. It's rather like, I think, having um, a camera. Um, You know, when you focus a camera, you can either focus it so you have what's immediately in front of you really pin sharp, or you can focus it so that the background comes into clarity and the foreground sort of fuzzes up a bit. Similarly, in our lives, we can either have our awareness and our focus on what's right in front of us. What's the next thing on my to-do list? What's this person in front of me? What's the next thing I've got to get to? What's etc. etc. Well, we can also adjust our gaze, kind of look up to the hills, as the psalmist says, and put our gaze on the Lord, on his saving work, on his promise of eternity. We can switch back and forth. And they're both important. I'm not by any means saying that the the immediate awareness and the immediate moment is not important. We find God in the immediate moment. That's another great grace. But just to be aware of getting the balance between the two is where I think we find more peace and more joy. And the second thing, and I want to close with this very quickly, is if we want more peace and more joy, perhaps our first step is to pray, which is usually the answer to most things, Pray and ask God for the grace to receive them. These are not things that we can do in our own strength or they're not things to be achieved. They're things to be received and lived. So we can pray to the Lord for those graces. I'd like to close by praying that for us now. So let's pray. We thank you and praise you for all that you are and all that you have done for us, Lord. Please help us to choose to walk each day in the light of your presence and give us the grace of deep peace and deep joy in you so that we can bring glory to your name. Amen. Great. The band could come up. Thank you, Cheryl. We're going to respond uh, now. And um, just as Cheryl was speaking, I was loving that image of St. Francis. Anyone else? Just doing the air. They didn't have guitars, did they? Just getting on the air air violin. And just off he went. Um, And that idea of joy. And I just, I have a sense that there is, a, there is a discipline, actually, when it comes to joy. Do you know what I mean? That it's something almost we need to ch- 